Okay, um, so uh, the Bible reading is uh, from Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, through that, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Uh, Just want to very quickly pick up on something from the last session, actually from Rachel's comment at the end about, uh, I mentioned the need to uh, challenge people and call them up to be consecrated, uh, set aside for Christian ministry. And the question is, what about young women? Um, Just so you know, my uh, wife uh, spent five years at Theological College, has a Master of Divinity and works uh, for a national ministry organisation. That is just a way of saying there are tons of... Well, that's one ministry, but there are tons of other ministries that women can and should do, and in fact the church will be impoverished if they don't. I know that um, there are... There's a strong conversation going on in the church about can women be senior pastors and teachers and all that sort of stuff. It's a good conversation to have. There's important parts of the scriptures to read and study and understand that. But even if you just put that aside for the moment, uh, it's still the case, irrespective of where you land on that, it's still the case that we must, 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 must have women who are vocationally set aside to serve. Um, If it's only men, uh, it will be unhealthy in lots of ways. So uh, that we embody that in our family um, and I would encourage my daughter as much as my sons to be thinking about what they might do with their lives for service of the Lord. Let me pray and then we will uh, move forward in the book of Exodus. Uh, our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks again for our time together. We thank you for the, the freedom and the liberty we have to uh, open the scriptures up Uh, to learn more of the story of your people and uh, to see how this is, of course, our story, Uh, a story that started a long time ago, uh, found its climax and fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ and now uh, is um, being played out in our lives and around the world as we wait for his return. Uh, As we now uh, turn to think about uh, who we are as we wait, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, speak to us through your word. For your glory. Amen. So we're continuing on, uh, just from exactly where we left off in our story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and uh, they've been told that they need to enact their remembrance of their deliverance. Uh, where do we go from here? Uh, well, before we come to the text itself, I, you ever noticed there's a, there's a significant difference, I think, between people who are Christians and people who aren't Christian. Uh, regarding what they think about 
the way that God directs their lives or the way that they give themselves to God's direction. Uh, People who aren't Christians, many people who aren't Christians, one of the, the things that prevents them from being Christians, one of the things that stops them being Christians is not actually that they've thought about Jesus, thought about what he's done for them, understood the, the cross and the resurrection and said, no, I don't want any part of that. That's not the only thing that prevents people coming to Christ. Uh, one really big thing that stops people coming to Christ is because they think If I give my life to Jesus, suddenly I have to do everything the Bible says. That is, it's not the belief that's a problem. It's the way I have to live my life as a result that puts me off. And they think the Christian life is just full of rules. It restricts my freedom. It's a whole list of don't. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, Uh, And I can't make my own decisions. And frankly, everything that I want to do and everything that I'm doing, I need to now not do anymore. That, I think, is one of the big barriers to people coming to faith. And I think it's, it's often under-recognised. I think we sometimes say, you just need to believe a lot of stuff uh, and become a Christian. But people who hear that say, yeah, I know I've got to believe a, st- a lot of stuff, but you also expect that I need to stop sleeping with my girlfriend, stop getting drunk, stop stealing money from the top drawer of the... Like, you don't just say, I've got to believe stuff. There's a, a way I'm meant to live, which is true. Christians, on the other hand, uh, think quite differently. We think God's ways are best. God's ways are good. We want to follow God's ways, uh, not only because we want to be obedient and because we uh, want to submit ourselves to God, but because we, we see that, that God made us, God made the world, God knows how the world works, God knows how we work, God wants what's good for us, his ways are better. Lo and behold, it's actually better for me not to be committing adultery. It's better for me not to be someone who covets other people's possessions and steals. Uh, it's better for me to be a person who speaks words of truth, not someone who lies. God's not just saying this to impose rules on me. God's saying this because this is good for me. It's his blessing to me to follow his ways. So we, we have these two kind of views. The, the unbelievers think, oh, it's, it's so restrictive. And the Christians who think, oh, thank goodness God shows me how to live my life well and faithfully and, and healthily. But then within the Christian camp, there are different views on what that means. Uh, and particularly... Christians have different views about how you discern God's will. How do you work out what God's will? Even if all the Christians say, look, we think God's way is the best way. We want to do what God wants us to do. That'll be good for us. That'll bring glory to him. Then the conversation starts, yeah, but how do I know? How do I know what God's way is? How do I I know what is the thing I should be doing, the way I should be living my life? Uh, and, And this can lead to a lot of issues, actually. It can lead to conflict among Christians as they have significantly different views about how you work out God's will. Uh, and there are significantly different views about how we work out God's will, and Christians can clash over that. Uh, it can lead to fear, where some Christians are scared that they don't know if they're doing what God wants them to do. Like, I, I, I really want it, but I, I don't know if this is it. I, how do I actually know for certain, for sure? Uh, on the flip side of that, it can lead to an over-certainty people who kind of strut around saying I know everything about what God wants for me uh, I've got it nailed down I, I have no doubt whatsoever this is what I'm supposed to be doing without much margin for correction or for reconsideration and it can lead to a passiveness where Christians just 
can put their feet up and just say, I'm just waiting for God to say something. Meantime, I'm just going to wait. What we often find is the reason for this is that many Christians have a kind of sense, an intuition about what God wants, but, but not a certainty. Because we rarely hear a clear, audible word of God. We, we rarely hear something that's definitive and incontestable. We rarely see something written on a wall by our floating hand, as we did in the book of Daniel. We rarely actually encounter God's direct uh, encounter God directly in a way that uh, when he comes to us and tells us what to do, like we see happening in the scriptures. Uh, so what we have now when we turn to Exodus chapter 13 is an example of when God was right there and made it crystal clear what the people should do. Uh, this kind of unmediated, direct guidance as they left Egypt and headed towards the promised land. Exodus 13. Uh, We pick up the story in uh, verse 17, uh, and we uh, just see the narrative continuing. Pharaoh let the people go. Interestingly, God didn't lead them on the road through the Philistine country, that was the shortest, for God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So uh, God is guiding them away from a situation which he knows might lead them to uh, be frightened, might lead them to uh, panic, uh, to change their minds and to head back to Egypt, to reject their salvation. So he led them around the desert road towards the Red Sea. And we'll see uh, when we come back to this this afternoon, this is strategically ridiculous. It's, it's in some ways a, a foolish and crazy thing to be heading towards the Red Sea, but uh, we'll come to that. Uh, and they went up as it was, ready for battle, even though God knows uh, if you face battle, you might, um, you might turn uh, and uh, return to Egypt. They took the bones of Joseph with them um, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath uh, and he had said that, um, uh, that once they, Israel had been rescued by God, he wanted his bones to return back to the promised land and to be buried there. And he's just a great example, I think, of people uh, committing to an oath, sticking by their pledge, not letting their yes be flaky and wavery, but we said we'd do this, we're going to do it. But then we come to verses 20 uh, and 21 and 22. And we see that after leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. And then here it is, verse 22. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. This is Remarkable and obviously supernatural, uh, that as the people go, they don't sort of head out and say, you know, is it left or right, or I don't know, what do you reckon? Oh, my sense is there's this column of, uh, column of fire, a column of cloud, of smoke, that goes in front of them, and they follow it. And it's just, it's unmissable. And as we keep going through the book of Exodus, uh, we'll see that this column of fire comes to rest and hover above the tabernacle, that proto-temple. And the, when it hovers, the people wait. But then when it lifts up and moves on, they know, let's pack up the camp and follow. Uh, it's quite remarkable. Um, I was, uh, my wife and I were given a gift of a wonderful overseas holiday a few years ago. We went to South Africa. And uh, we were out one dusk, and they were burning sugarcane 
which is, I don't know, part of the refining process. I think it's not good for the environment, but anyway, that's what they were doing. And as we were, we were driving in this car at night and we could just see this column of smoke and the bottom of the smoke was all orange from the fire. And it made me think immediately of this. Uh, and the thing about it was, I knew this was sugarcane being burnt, that, that was told to us, but it was pretty imposing and pretty incredible. You couldn't miss it. And, and the kind of the glow of the light and the smoke. I thought, imagine if that, that kind of column really was there, guiding you each way. I mean, it'd be so clear what you, should, what you should do, when you should stand up, when you should sit down, when you should move forward. And this is what Israel had. This is what Israel had. <coughs> now, we read that and we say, well, that's fabulous. This is a great gift of God. You've got people who are going on this really important journey, the big journey of their lives, uh, and God is with them, not just in a kind of vibey, oh yeah, kind of God's with us. He's there in a column of smoke and a column of fire. Uh, He says when to get up, when to sit down. He says when to turn left, when to turn right. It's unambiguous what they should do. And we read that and go, that's great. What about us? Where's my column of fire? Where's my pillar of smoke? I get up and there's lots of days I don't know what I should do. And how is God going to, why doesn't God direct me like he directed them? Interestingly, um, lots of people who aren't Christians think one of the big uh, problems or restrictions or challenges, difficulties of the Christian life is that you lose your freedom. Lots of Christians know that one of the challenges is you have too much freedom. If we love the Lord and we want to follow him, it's difficult to say, I want to follow him, but I don't know which way to go. Uh, it's actually The problem is actually opposite how to deal with the freedom God gives us uh, rather than losing our freedom. And as I said, what this results in is uh, lots of Christians end up with very different ideas about the way that God guides people. Very different ideas. And they make, uh, there's some mistakes you can make as you start thinking about this. You could think God no longer guides people at all. You could think, here's what happens now. God used to guide people in the Old Testament and maybe once or twice in the New Testament, but God no longer guides people now. Uh, That was just for then. What's happened now is God has fallen silent. Uh, He's happy for us to make our own way and just figure it out. Uh, But really, there's there's nothing more that we can expect in terms of God's direct guidance for us. Uh, The problem with this thinking is a couple of things. Uh, One, it limits God. It says, oh, God had power in the Old Testament, but, but nowadays that's kind of withered and died. He, he doesn't want... I, I want to tell you, whatever does happen, you need to know God could miraculously appear in a pillar of fire and cloud if he wanted to. He is no less powerful than now than he was then. So I don't want to ever enter into a mind space where I think... Uh, God's gone kind of a bit weak and soft. Uh, He's not quite as majestic and present as before. That's unhelpful. Uh, Or you might get a different view. Not that God's gotten soft and and weak, but but actually he's just lost interest. You know, Israel, they were kind of cool. We did stuff in the desert. That was really fun. And, you know, but these guys, meh, that's a bit boring. I'll go. You could just think God's checked out. God's lost interest in us. Um, We want to know where to go. And he says, yeah, but you're really boring. I want to do something else. 
The other thing is, again, we could shut ourselves off to God. We could just say, look, uh, I'm not even going to look or listen. I'm just going to close my eyes, block my ears, because God won't speak to me. This is not healthy, obviously, uh, to think that God no longer does or could guide his people at all. I think that's just uh, going far too far down one end of the spectrum, and that's, that's very unhelpful. Another mistake you could make, though, is you can think God should guide, and uh, actually I hear that he does in many cases, but he isn't for me. He could and should, but isn't. You know, here in uh, Exodus 13, God's guiding these people in incredible ways, and I want that, and he could, of course he could, but he doesn't. And I hear about my friend who had a dream and I hear about uh, someone else who just knew that the Lord had opened a door for them but uh, that doesn't happen for me. And that's, that's not helpful either to think that way because that can give us a very unhealthy picture of God uh, that is not just at the corporate level but at the personal level. You can say, there's a God, he's powerful. He knows what I should do and what he wants me to do but he won't tell me. That makes God quite cruel. That makes God quite nasty. God, God knows if I should turn left or right. He won't tell me. And if I go into error, well, ultimately you're saying, well, God could have prevented it, but he didn't. Um, it also, uh, I think, uh, can lead to a place where Christians have become, as I said before, a bit, a bit too passive, a bit too ineffective. God could guide, and so I'm, again, just going to wait for that. I'm not going to have any courage. I'm not going to have any uh, kind of um, initiative. I'm not going to make a hard call because God hasn't told me. And so then we end up with people of God who are passive or nervous or uncertain, non-committal, because they're waiting for something explicit from the Lord. The other thing we could think, of course, is that uh, yes, God does give specific guidance all the time, but it's really down to us to be attuned to it. I just need to know how to get on God's wavelength. If I get on God's wavelength, then, of course, uh, I'll be able to pick up what God wants me to do each and every day in each and every point. You know, um, I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll just know if I listen, yes, the Lord wants me to wear the blue socks today, not the black socks. I, I, I've, I've tuned in to God's wavelength. I know what God wants. Um, and on every issue, all the time, no matter what it is, I can get guidance from God, not just in the big decisions, but also the everyday decisions. Uh, God will guide me if, I'm, if I've got my, uh, my listening set right. It may not be a pillar of cloud or fire, but I'll have a sense of God's will. The problem with this, of course, is... I think we get to a place where it comes, becomes very hard then to separate our own desires, our own emotions, the force of our own convictions from God's will. That is, uh, it's very easy if you feel like God will somehow let you know which way you should go, that you will over-interpret things as a sign from God, uh, possibly just to reinforce what you want to do anyway. Should I have a second piece of pie for dessert? I feel the Lord is telling me I should. Remarkably, God wants me to do exactly what I want to do. Um, and of course, you know, it, it may not just be your emotions or your, your, uh, your passions or your desires. It might just be, actually, 
you know, that you did eat too much pie and your stomach's feeling sick and you say, does God think I should eat another piece of pie? No, I don't think he's saying that. How do you distinguish? How do you know what's just a kind of gut feeling, a psychological feeling, an emotional response and the word of God? And I think that's a great question to ask to people who very often feel like God's telling them to do something or other. I don't mean this as a criticism, like I'm not saying I want to cut you down and prove how foolish your thinking is, but I want to ask as a genuine question, how do you know that's God and not just you, some part of you, just being predisposed to want something and feeling okay about it and taking that as a sign from God? That's very dangerous because we can actually, in doing that, elevate our own desires and our own self and our own will up to the status of God. What I want is God's will. So there's a bunch of problems, aren't they? There's a bunch of problems. Uh, the problems of this kind of overvaluing supernatural guidance. You know, we only think something is from God uh, if, it, if, it, if it's this kind of can't be materially received Uh, we think it's got to be this sense this vibe this spiritual intuition that's how i know god's really speaking but again that could just be me we could become passive just people who think well i can't do anything because i haven't heard god speak we could undervalue the bible there are christians who are like this and i find it bizarre where they'll say gosh if only I knew what God's will for my life was. If only I had some idea what God wanted me to do. If only there was some way that God would speak to me. And that happens. It really happens. Uh, people who, uh, I, I, I know of people who he, uh, have the scriptures before them but don't read them and instead look to hear from God in other ways. Uh, we talk about this in theology uh, just to kind of make some distinctions for us so we understand the different things we're talking about. We talk about the way God reveals himself to people in a number of categories. You might have heard of the categories of general revelation and special revelation. So in theology, those terms mean general revelation means what you can know of God and his will just from looking at the world around you. Okay, uh, And so there are parts of the Bible, the book of Romans, for example, that says, you know, you can, you can have at least an intuition that there's a creator just by looking at the world around you. That's just a general truth that you can extract from the world. General revelation. Special revelation is something that you could not deduce. It's not intuitive. It's not something you could work out. It's the word of God in the scriptures. And it's specific, it's particular, and it's eternal and enduring. It's the same for everyone. Your special revelation, not different from my special revelation, it's the word of God in the Bible. And this is how God wants to communicate with us, through the scriptures. And we could talk for a long, 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 long time about the doctrines of revelation and all this kind of stuff. But the conclusion of all that is that it's God's word here that is unchanging, specific, particular and enduring and he's given us so that we might know him. But what we've started talking about as well is another category, which I call a specific revelation. So general revelation, look at the world. Special revelation, look at the Bible. Specific revelation is what about my life? What about me today, this week? Uh, And the Bible doesn't actually have a section on 
Tim, this is what you should do when you're 44. Oh, that's good. Now I know. But that's my question. And that's the area of specific revelation. The other thing that the scriptures give us in special revelation is not just particular instances of do this, don't do that, Ten Commandments, uh, so on. The scriptures give us a story. They give us the story of God's work in his world, his work through his people. And that story is actually the story of, of the world, of the creation. Uh, the Bible story maps onto the story of creation. So it starts with the world being made, uh, it moves through the people rebelling against God, and it ends up, as we've said, in what will happen at the end. And actually, we know how the world works, and we know uh, who we are as we effectively enter that story and we live the Bible story out in our world today. Uh, we, we become actors, if you like, in part of this script. Uh, this actually is very important for us when we're thinking about guidance because this is lots of the big picture stuff. This is lots of the stuff that sets our great direction uh, in which we find our small direction. One thing to know when we read the Bible is it's not primarily about us. It's not primarily about us, which is maybe a bit challenging for those of us who uh, come out of a tradition that teaches that God wants to speak to me and Jesus wants to have a relationship with me. Those things are true, but the first thing the Bible is about, or the first person the Bible is about, is God. It's a book about God. So when I read the Bible, I expect to find out things about God before I expect to find out things about me. And that's quite an important paradigm shift. I'm going to the scriptures to learn about God, his world, uh, and how he's working in his world. And then only secondarily do I start thinking about how do I fit into that story. And the interesting thing is the story of the Bible, therefore, or the teaching of the Bible, is not teaching about how I can be fulfilled. It's not about how I can know what I should do with my life so that I'm fulfilled, I'm satisfied, I live my best life now. Uh, the story of the Bible is what God is doing, who God is, and secondarily about how I can join in to his story and be his person living with the priority on him, the glory going to him, the emphasis being on his name uh, and his plans and me almost being a footnote. Oh, not quite, but you know what I mean. The helpful thing about that is it gives us the big picture. Uh, we know from the scriptures everything about God's primary purpose for our life. Uh, we have enough guidance, as it were, enough direction from the Bible story that's God's story and as we think about how we fit into that. If you ever have wondered, what is God's will for my life? Uh, what should I be doing? What direction should my life be taking? The scriptures are, are very simple. What you should be doing with your life is trusting and following Jesus and doing everything in your power to bring glory to his name. That's God's will for your life. You should be resisting sin. You should be seeking holiness. You should be trying to bless other people. That's God's will for your life. Uh, those headlines must be in place because all the details about 
which colour socks I should wear and should I have another piece of pie, they're all the fine print under the big heading. But the big heading is, what should I do with my life? I should trust and follow Jesus. I should bring glory to his name. I should resist sin. I should serve other people. That's what my life is about. And, and if you don't uh, wake up each morning thinking that's what my life is about, then I'd encourage you to uh, start doing that, to start remembering that your life is about bringing glory to God and only secondarily about your own personal journey and your own fulfilment. It's about him before it's about us. So I think this is really helpful when we're trying to work out which way we should go. We don't have a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke before us telling us if we should go left or right. So what do we have? We have some very simple big signposts. When I'm at a junction in my life and I want to make a decision, one question I ask is, does this bring glory to God? Does this bring greater fame to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, it seems like a pretty good way to go. If I'm at a point in my life and I say, I don't know which way to go, uh, left or right, and it says, is this sin? Does this dishonour God? Is this not really something that magnifies his name? And if the answer is, well, actually it is, then that's not the way I should go. That should be the way we think about, in the first instance, the decisions we make and the directions that our life takes. Does this bring glory to Jesus? Does this magnify his name? Is it sin? Is it serving and blessing other people? If the answer is yes, sounds good. It's interesting as well because when then you start, you enter into space where you say, well, that's, that kind of is obvious for lots of the big sort of moral choices in life. You know, should I have an affair? Mm, no, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't. Uh, should, but what about the, the so-called neutral choices? You know, should I have a week off in June? Should I wear the blue socks or the black socks this morning? Uh, and, and that's a space, I think, where sometimes we can get a bit stuck. And, and a couple of things to say on that. Uh, one is we actually need to filter, I think, even those things through the same grid. Uh, it might be that having a week's holiday in June does bring glory to Jesus, even if it's not in a direct sense, but through my refreshment, my ability to come back to the other things I'm doing with more energy and focus, through the time that I'll have to read the scriptures or something like that. Uh, or it might be, no, actually, you just had four weeks holiday in April. This is just indulgent, lazy, selfish. That doesn't bring glory to Jesus, so I won't. So you can put even, I think, those neutral questions through the grid, or you might find that there are some questions that are truly neutral. Should I wear the blue socks or the black socks? Well, they were both ethically made. They are both... So, and and that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And we can embrace the freedom that some things actually really don't matter and not get tied up in them and not pretend that we need a word from God about them and not pretend that they have moral importance, but just press on, free from needing to know the particulars of God's will. So let me bring that together and uh, we don't have the, the pillar before us but I think we could almost come up with something of a process for discerning God's will in our lives. Uh, and I want to say I think it's a process perhaps with four steps in it. Uh, the first step to work out if God has a will, a purpose, uh, not if God, if, if God has a particular direction he wants you to take at a moment in your life uh, is to consult the Bible. 
Know your scriptures, read the Bible, look at them. Again, uh, you will find in there the things that are grossly sinful that God doesn't want you to do. Steer clear of them. You will know many of the big things that God does want you to do. Make disciples, be holy, do those things. Uh, Consult the scriptures as step one, both in the fine details and the big picture. What's God doing in his world and how can I be part of it? Second thing you can do, I think, is I actually want to go out and say, I think you can wait on the potential that God might have a special word for you. That is, I think you can take time to bring things to God in prayer and to ask God, Lord, if there is something particular you would like me to do, out of choice A and choice B, turning left, turning right, the blue socks or the black socks, if there is, Lord, tell me, because I want to do your will. I know of people who are conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians who have had very clear guidance from God about things that was unambiguous and undeniable. I'm thinking of a couple who were uh, looking at what they do next in their life and they had such a vivid dream about going as missionaries to South America, uh, Central America rather, such a sharp and vivid dream that when they stopped and reflected on it, they said, this is too unambiguous to not be from God. It's not their normal way of operating. They were kind of go to the Bible, what does the Bible say? Make disciples, don't sin, we can do that. But this was God saying, and you're going to go to South America. I heard another story of a a guy who was a senior Christian leader got a call from a young Christian in the middle of the night or late in the night and the, um, the young Christian had disturbed this guy as he was winding down for the evening and said, uh, his name was John, John, I, I really need to speak to you. Um, I've got this terrible problem. And you know, please tell me what it is. How can I help? He goes, I, I just, God has been telling me that I need to go to India and I really don't know what I should do. And John goes, well, if God's going to go to India, go to India for goodness sake and hangs up the phone. The phone calls again. He says, well, actually, I'm not sure if God wants me to go. And it's what I think. is ah. <laughs> so you haven't actually had a clear word from God. What you have is a gut feeling and you're wanting to explore that more. But his first response was interesting, wasn't it? Because even as a senior Christian leader who was a Bible-believing conservative guy, he says, if the Lord tells you to go to India, you don't need to talk to anyone else about it. Go to India. But don't think the Lord tells you to go to India just because you had a curry and you feel like, hmm, that's, that's doing something inside me. <laughs> if it's not clear, don't act as though it is. So I think the first thing is consult the Bible. The second thing is listen for the Spirit. And in that listening for the Spirit, I think we need to be brave enough to be open to that. But we also need to be ready for the fact that sometimes God might not give us any specific guidance and we must not insist. We must not insist. If I say, God, I don't know which way to go, left or right, can you please guide me? And I sit and I wait and I pray and nothing, then God has not got a word of guidance for me that moment. And I needn't pretend that he does and I needn't continue to wait forever. Uh, If God wants to speak to me, he will. And if he doesn't, I'm not going to demand it or insist that he does. I'm going to proceed with my big picture What would bring glory and honour to him? Uh, Is this a matter of indifference? Uh, I'm going to move forward on that. Consult the Bible, listen to the Spirit. The third thing is, 
Seek the counsel of trusted and mature Christian leaders and friends. Uh, Throughout the Bible, we do see God's people coming together and together sharing their wisdom and understanding. Uh, In fact, it's not too much further on in the book of uh, Exodus. We won't get to it, actually, but in chapter 18... There's that great uh, record of Jethro, who's the father-in-law of Moses, hearing about how Moses was unable to manage all of the oversight of the people of Israel, and he uh, suggests that he puts in place a tiered system of people who will basically manage the pastoral concerns of the people, uh, in which... What he's doing there is Moses is listening to Jethro, taking his wise advice, and then the people are called to listen to others and take their wise advice. And we see this in other parts of the scriptures. We see this in places like Acts 15, where the apostles are wrestling with what impositions they should put on the Gentiles who've become Christians. So you might know that all the early Christians were Jews. Jesus, of course, was a Jew, and the disciples were all Jews. But then non-Jews started accepting the good news of Jesus. And they said, well, the question is, do they need to become Jews? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow our food laws? And the way they resolved this was in conversation. In Acts chapter 15, there's what we now call the Jerusalem Council. And the conclusion of that is, uh, they, they came to their conclusion, the language is, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And the Holy Spirit is there working in their conversation as mature Christians with gospel hearts seeking God's glory. So I think we need to seek the counsel of mature Christian leaders. And this says a lot about our Christian community because what church is not is just a Sunday gathering. I'm sure you know this. Church is, it is a Sunday gathering and we should gather regularly to hear the word and praise God and pray and all those things, but it's not just that. The church is a body of believers who open their lives to one another, who live side by side in the faith and help spur each other on to greater faithfulness and service of Jesus. And so when I have a big decision I need to make in my life, I want to come together with my brothers and sisters and say, as co-heirs with Christ, as my, my beloved siblings in the Lord... Uh, help me think this one through. Pray with me. Talk with me. Open the scriptures with me. Um, guide me. We take the counsel of other Christians. And that's hard because it means we have to be vulnerable. You know, that we have to say, uh, at the very least, I don't know what to do next, but perhaps I'm struggling with the temptation. Uh, or, or, or perhaps uh, there's something where I, need, I know I've done wrong and I need to work out the best way to repent and make it right. We need to seek others who will be safe and support us in that. Consult the Bible, listen for the Spirit, take the counsel of mature Christians and the fourth thing is make a decision and trust God. Make a decision and trust God. If something is in line with what we see in the Scriptures, if we have waited on the Spirit, if we've consulted the Christian community, then it's time to be proactive. Make a decision and entrust it to God. The ball, as it were, is in our court. Uh, Sometimes we won't have all the information we want, and this is very difficult, but God is not waiting for us to say, I have now weighed this up, and in favour of going left 
is 100% of the information and in favour of going right is zero. So it's obvious. No, often we'll still be left with a decision and we'll have to make that decision. And I think the call on us is to be active agents to make those decisions, to run with them and to trust God. Do you know God wants us to be decision makers? God wants us to be decision makers. Go right back to the very start of the Bible. You remember the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, God, what is the first word that God says to Adam? God puts Adam in the garden. The very first word he said to him is, you may eat freely of any tree in the garden. And then it goes on to say, of the tree of knowledge and evil, uh, knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. And we, we go straight to that, and, there, and there's a lot to say there. But notice the first thing God says to people is, you may eat, eat as you like. That is, the choice is yours. God's not saying, no, you're having apples for breakfast, oranges for lunch, bananas for dinner, mangoes on special occasions. No, he says, do what you want. It's your choice. You are free. And that even extends, doesn't it, to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, there's a tree here. Don't eat it. If you eat it, you'll die. There'll be a consequence. And yet, the decision is still yours. You notice God doesn't put a force field around the tree. He doesn't take the tree out of the garden. He doesn't make an invisible tree. He says, I really don't want you to do this. If you do, the consequences will be dire. But the choice is yours. Make your decision. Uh, We know Adam and Eve make the wrong decision, a foolish decision, and the cost is immeasurably high. The consequences are catastrophic. But God didn't curtail his freedom. Now, for those of you who are theologically inclined, you might say, hang on, is this a Calvinism versus Arminianism kind of debate coming on here? Uh, We can talk about that at some time if you like. Um, But I want to say, irrespective of where you land on that in um, a theological conversation, even if you're a hardcore Calvinist, the reason that this debate happens is because we see both these things in the scriptures. We see both God's absolute sovereignty and human freedom. If we didn't see both those things, there'd be no Calvinist-Arminian debate. Uh, We see them both. Uh, So even if you're a hardcore Calvinist, you have to realise in that system, God still gives people freedom however that works god still expects people to make decisions um we're not just puppets we're not just robots uh, actually we are active agents and our decisions have consequences so adam and eve had this decision they made the wrong decision but the point is still god has made us to be decision making people and i think one of the most kind of uninspiring things that you can encounter among Christian believers, is an inability to make a decision, a passivity, a sense in which I don't know what I should do or I haven't got the courage to step up and make a choice and live with it. Coming back to the Calvinists, God's sovereign. Whatever happens is not going to blow his plans out of the water. It's about him. He's not concerned. But he does call us to be people who take initiative, who take decisions. So there's what I think is your four-step process for decision-making. Consult the scriptures. Listen for the spirit. Maybe a pillar of cloud and fire will turn up in your lounge room. I don't know. But don't insist on it, but be open to it. Consult mature Christian believers. Make a decision and trust God. Let me give you a worked example. What about getting married? This is one that uh, young people often want to know about. How can I decide who to marry? Well, if it comes to the point where you have multiple options on the table... 
Uh, it might be a live conversation. But people often get tied up in knots about this, don't they? Oh no, should I marry this person or that person or that person? Which, which way should I pursue it? Well, it could be that you will have uh, a revelation that's very particular. And again, I've got some friends who are, like me, kind of pretty mainstream, conservative, evangelical Christians who were missionaries, uh, and they were talking about a woman they'd met overseas, and this woman uh, saw written in the sky the name of a man who she was going to marry, a name she'd never seen before. And then shortly after that, she met a man with that name. Wisely, she didn't say anything to him about it. (laughs) But they did end up getting married. Uh, So, that could happen. But if that doesn't happen, if you don't have that unambiguous, incontestable word from God, who are you going to marry? Well, you turn to the scriptures. The Bible says, if you're a Christian believer, you shouldn't marry someone who's an unbeliever. You shouldn't marry someone who's the same gender as you. You shouldn't marry someone who's your relative. You shouldn't marry someone who's already married. But that's kind of about the scope of it. Because God's primary concern is that we have healthy relationships that honour him, that bring glory to him, that aren't sinful, but not necessarily that they are to person X or person Y or person Z. So, you know, it could be that a young guy realises it's not wrong for me to marry Mary or Jane or Paysan if each of them is female, a believer, unrelated and single. That's all fine. Or a woman might decide, well, I could marry Peter or Paul or Ranjit if each of them is male, unrelated and single and a believer. In doing this, I'm both completely in line with God's guidance and will for my life and exercising my freedom at the same time. Of course, when you look back 10, 20, 50 years later, we know that every decision we've made is under God's sovereignty and it was always the person God wanted us to marry. But in the moment, at the time, we have freedom and it's to be embraced and we thank God for that. We don't get paralysed and unable to move. We take the guides from the scripture, we listen for the spirit, we consult Christian community and we make a decision and trust God. There's one last level at which I want to think about this and it's the level of corporate guidance and I'll only be brief here but I've been thinking very individually so far like what does God want me to do with my life but there's a whole other level which is what does God want us to do with our corporate life and of course in Exodus chapter 13 we're seeing corporate Israel it's not like everyone had their own little pillar of fire and smoke going in different directions there was one big guiding uh, vision for everyone And God has a will for his people collectively as much as, if not more than, perhaps, he has a will for us individually. Uh, God wants us as his body, as his church, as his people to be doing certain things and actually to be prioritising our corporate direction and our corporate obedience and holiness and fruitfulness. Your church now actually is at a very significant junction, isn't it? Uh, You have a newly minted minister. uh, And I suspect, although I don't know, 
that you probably in the next little while might have some conversations about what's the next thing for our church in its life. Um, where, where, where to from here? Uh, now that we, we have um, Chris on deck, what are we going to do as a church community? And what you'll need to do is together come to a corporate sense of what God would have you do for the glory of Jesus, uh, to bless the people around you uh, and to advance the cause of the kingdom and the gospel in this place. I suspect that God's plan in bringing Chris here is not that you just chug along as you always uh, have and always will do, but because this is a new chapter and it's time for doing whatever that chapter involves. So how are you going to work that out? Who's going to make the decision? Is the church a democracy? Well, I'll give you the, the quick answer on that. No, it's not. Does that mean that there's an authoritarianism in the church where there's a boss who tells everyone what to do? No, that's not right either. Is it the people who've been here the longest, who've got the deepest roots, who get the biggest say? No, although we'd be foolish not to listen to those who've got a long history and a deep investment. Is it just the loudest voice, whoever's grumpiest or most passionate, who gets their way? No, I don't think it's that either. But what it will need to be is a process where corporately the church looks at the scriptures. The church even prays, asking God, is there anything in particular that we should be doing at this time? Where together you consult and talk and engage and then when you make a decision and move as a body to represent Jesus in this place for his glory and to do what you can to grow the footprint of the kingdom here and to build up his church. I will say, uh, just as um, one note in that, uh, the church is not a democracy and it's not a dictatorship, uh, but it is actually very important that the people of the church respect those who are placed in positions of leadership above them. The book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. There is a sense in which uh, those who lead us in church are people who we trust have been put there by Jesus. And Jesus had put them there for our good and so that we might trust them and follow them. So it would be a very, very significant thing to do to reject the direction of a church's pastor. Sometimes you have to. I think if a church's pastor is saying, we're going to go and do something heretical or sinful or against the will of God, you have to say, we can't go with you. But if it's a matter of strategy, if it's a matter of uh, planning, uh, it would be a very big thing, I think, to stand against a leader of God's people. In my own church, I'm very conscious always to submit and defer to my pastor precisely because I think God has put him there for my good and I entrust him with that position. We don't like the language of submission much. It's culturally very grating. Uh, and there are terribly bad expressions of it and abused examples of it. 
But in its essence, submission is actually something that should be at the heart of all Christian life uh, and ultimately to Jesus. We don't just call Jesus saviour, we also call him Lord. He is our Lord, he is our King, he owns us. Uh, Paul even uses the language of being enslaved to Christ. He is our master and it would be high-handed of us to reject what Jesus calls us to do. Now, our pastors don't share that throne by any means. But they are people who uh, God has placed in a, a significant position above uh, the direction of the church and who have a responsibility for teaching the church, pastoring the people, making sure that it's holy and healthy. And I just would say that it would be a high-handed thing to do just to reject a church leader. Now, I'm not saying this because I think this is a problem you guys have, but I'm saying in the midst of trying to discern what we do corporately, we want to respect the leadership that God's put above us. And I think it's really easy to respect leaders when we know they're people who love us and listen to us and care for us, as I know your leaders do, and I have no doubt whatsoever that Chris will. But as a general principle, this is just a good thing for us to keep in mind. So no pillars of fire and cloud, perhaps, but we've got the word of God. We've got each other. We've got the authority in ourselves given by God to be decision-making people. And we know our big direction. Bring glory to him. Resist sin. Seek the advance of the kingdom and blessing other people. And in that framework, we take our freedom and we seek to do everything we can to pursue those ends. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for uh, the fact that we both have great freedom, but also great guidance. We have no doubt what our lives are about. We are here for you. We live for your glory, for your honour. Our lives are in your hands. Our purposes are your purposes. We're not here to build our own kingdoms. We're here to build yours. And we pray, Father, that you'd help us to both adhere to everything we read in the scriptures and yet also to know that you've given us agency and freedom and that we need to be brave and active and proactive in seeking to make decisions that will advance the cause of Christ. Help us to be a great blessing to each other as we love one another, as we uh, seek to help each other discern your will in our lives. Help us to be open to your spirit. And help us, Lord, as we work together as a community to be great at uh, shaping each other, um, sharpening each other, uh, encouraging each other, and together uh, committing to the way that you've set before us. And particularly in this church, pray that you'd help uh, each member to be a great um, trusting follower of your servant, Chris, who you've placed here for their good. Amen.